0: Where was I? Um, well, Astrigone's Queen is an image of the inordinate power that a woman can have at home. And people can read that and see no relevance to what goes on in Ithaca, except we know in Ithaca that, I mean, the measure of how great her power is that she's got a hundred suitors. There's not five, there's not two, there's a hundred. And they're tearing the place apart. So over and over and over again, Homer's making us aware of the subtle things whose effects are so great and we ordinarily miss them. We just dismiss them or look past them. The siren is an image of that, of the, the attractiveness, the beauty that lures a man on and the shoreline of strewn with skulls. James Joyce in his siren episode, I, I think I told you, Joyce's Ulysses is his redoing of the Odyssey, Homer's the Odyssey, in the equivalent to the siren episode, Joyce takes us into a bar where it has two barmaids, and it's really fascinating to watch because they're going, "Oh, sweetie, oh, honey." I mean, they're you know what the way women do in bar. I mean, I, when, when a woman calls me honey, my, I just stop and say, "Would you not?" I mean, I, that I cannot tell you. How, anyway, all these women are playing to the men, and the men are flirting with the women, and you can see the desires. Just you know, it's 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 Joyce being really comic, but. That's his treatment of the siren episode. He, he, he takes each one of the episodes in Homer's The Odyssey, but he brings it into modern Dublin, so it, you, you almost don't see the parallel. You have to work hard to see it. Skill and Charybdis are the lesser of two evils. If he tries to get by without any suffering, he's going to lose everybody. The harder thing is always to suffer the lesser of two evils because it involves us in suffering. It's a pain we don't want to take, but he has to do that to get home. The two greatest powers were Calypso and Circe. He's on Calypso's island for eight years. Circe's for one. So of the nine and a half years he's gone, nine of those years are spent on Calypso and Circe's island. So clearly, they represent in Homer's mind the um, the greatest powers of women and those powers that a man most has to deal with if he's to get home. And remember, getting home for Homer is not getting home the way it was, I mean for Odysseus, is not getting home the way it was for Nestor or Menelaus. Menelaus has got Helen, and we remember we went through this. Nestor almost does not recognize his wife. He just, he spends all of his time telling stories about the war. He, he cannot get out of the war. If if Odysseus is to come home, it's got to be something different from the past. And remember, the odyssey ends with finding his defeating the suitors, quieting that riot, um, executing the maidservants and the suitors, and meeting with Penelope. And there's that funny scene where she tests him to make sure it's her husband, and he is so humiliated and... Finally they come together and that night they go, to, they go to bed and tell their stories and there's that beautiful description of, of, of Athena stopping time. And I, I suggested that, I think what Homer's showing us is that's a moment when they come out of that epic endeavor, this battle with the past, and come into the present. It's a timeless moment. She stops time. The sun, you know, she, she holds time and I believe that for Homer that's an indication that they have finally realized that present moment that a man and woman can come together but look look at what it took to get there how much it takes to realize that that kind of union to not let the wounds of the past take hold or a wistfulness towards the future to actually live in the present moment the two great powers were Calypso and Circe. Remember, um, Circe is an image of, of all that in a woman that, that, that excites the animal in man, the sexual. She turns all of the men into beasts, remember. So she's an image of that in woman which excites the animal, the sexual animal. But, um, and Homer, he does not, he's not a Platonist. He's, he's not denying the body. He, he clearly acknowledges That's an important, our sexuality is an important aspect of who we are, we can't deny it. The the angelic mind wants to live in a kind of purity is in some ways dishonest, does not acknowledge uh, the body. Calypso is an image of something more transcendent because her island is situated, uh, it's described the umphalos um, to the divine, the umbilical cord to the divine order. So she images um, a transcendent beauty in woman. I'm, s- I'm so sorry to see that lost today, because it's such a lie. If you look at 90% of the advertisements on TV, they always have beautiful women. I mean, you almost can't sell a thing without putting a beautiful woman on an image. And then we pretend like women, I mean, the feminists or the moderns want everything to be equal, like, and women are used all the time. Um, and remember, the word calypso means hidden. She wants to hide. And both women are very possessive. They do not want to give Odysseus up. They do not want to let go of him. The word calypso means to hide. It's it's the basis of our word apocalypse. Calypso. To unhide. To bring out from hiding. If she keeps Odysseus, remember, if she keeps Odysseus the way she wants, he will never have his kleos. I should have given you guys a test. What does kleos mean? He will not attain his kleos, his honor. Remember, the great theme of the Iliad is kleos. The, what Homer shows us is that there's its inherent dignity to the human person, this kleos in a man, to become who he is. Both women want to keep him from it. possess him. Um, Remember that the great theme of the Odyssey is nostos. These are the two great themes, kleos and nostos. What is nostos? Must be the booty. Home. Home. Homecoming. From which we get nostalgia looking back to those things we want. he, Eliot's dealing with, what's, what's our ancient home? Is the garden. What's the home we look forward to? The New Jerusalem. This image of the home, the nostos, of the, the homecoming, the, the odyssey's about coming home, and all of the struggles that it takes to get there. And for Odysseus, as a married man, it means struggling with all of these feminine archetypes. So we took a look at those, and one of the, one of the more important ones for our purposes with, with uh, Welty was the siren and the Medusa. Remember I reminded you of that scene in Dante's Inferno where they have to pass through the gates of hell? That's a defining point in hell. It, in a sense, it defines hell as a heresy. And in order to get past that, Virgil has to ask for grace. An angel has to come. Human beings cannot deal with that on their own. And as they pass through the gate, it's the only time in the whole of Dante's time with Virgil that Virgil actually physically p- grabs him and turns him around. He does not want him to look at the Medusa because when, when you look at the Medusa, what happens? Turn to stone, right? From which we get Mr. Petri, petrified, <laughs> the petrified man. Um and you we can understand why, because men looking at the women, <laughs> <I> mean, this, <laughs> any man looking at those women would have to do with some pretty serious stuff. Um, so the Medusa turns men into stone, and I think, I mean my understanding of that allegory is that it turns man to despair. And I want to underline this because t- we've been talking about a world without God. These are modern works in which God no longer exists for the modern mind. So we're looking at natural man. What happens to man when God's taken out of the picture? That's what Faulkner was showing us in The Sound of the Fury. If you take God out of the picture and man has to deal with evil, what happens to him? When he has to confront evil in the world, when you take God out of the world, there's only one thing that can happen. He will turn to despair. Who's going to be able to deal with evil on his own without God? Let me put it differently, because I once again we just minimize it. Dante makes it really clear. I don't know of a major work that doesn't make this clear. In a struggle between a human being and an angel, who's got the advantage? The angel. I hope that's clear. They're demonic powers. They they were created figures of light. Lucifer was the greatest angel. My image of an angel is a dragon. Wings that can fly, it's here, except the light that God gave them is turned into fire. And they hoard, they want. So this stuff about taming angels that Hollywood wants, I mean, taming dragon drives me nuts. We don't learn to deal with dragons. We don't learn to see dragons as embodiments of evil, figures of evil. Mm -hmm. We're missing. Look on evil directly. Can there be any other effect? Virgil says to Dante, turn around. He physically turns him. To look on evil is frightening. And the man who has enough hubris to do it is going to be, I mean, the hubris is just going to get, him. I mean, it's it's an overwhelming experience. If we tried to match which with Satan, who do you think would win without grace? Otherwise, we don't, why did God, why did Christ come into the world? If we're so capable, there would have been no need for him to come. So the evil that we're struggling with is far greater than we are. So the Medusa is an image of that, and it's interesting that it's, it's a feminine image, that when man looks on that, he will run away or get turned into stone. Because without God, there is no way of dealing with that in a woman. So we're seeing some pretty stark, we're, we're being some, shown some pretty stark pictures of the feminine in the modern world in these stories that we're reading after we did that brief review of the classical influences, I turn to the Christian, and I want to go back, and I want, to, I want to remind you of something before I look at Eve and Adam. Remember that in the fall, this is, I think this is so important for us. Um, I ever, this is, we, it's How important is it that we always get first principles straight? Most of us tend to live our lives at... 10th and 11th and 12th steps removed from first principles. It's absolutely crucial that we get clear on first principles because they throw a light on everything else. If we don't clear on first principles, we're in in muddy waters all the time. So let me go back to beginnings just for a second. Man was made in the image of God. Yeah, we're made in the image. If you grew up Israeli or um, Islamic, You believe that God's an isolated figure, an isolated God. He lives in his isolation. The notion that God could have a companion to the Islam is a cause of rage because in their mind, Allah is alone. There's nobody but Allah. No one but Allah. We believe that God is Trinitarian. Yeah? Father conceived of himself, his his conception of himself is his son. It's an image of him. He images the father. The love between the two of them is, it can't be a force. We've gone through this before. It can't be a force. It has to be a person. Because God himself is all personhood. So his conception of himself has to be a person. The love between them. So we've got one God, three persons. Now that's a scandal to the rest of the world. But it's important for our purposes here for this reason. If you look... I, I forgot it again. I've got to bring this quote. I've got, to bring, I've got to remember to bring this quote by St. Thomas. There's nothing lacking in God, right? Or we wouldn't, If there's something more, that means there's something... He's not complete in himself. God's love is complete. There's no motion in God. Each one is complete in himself. <clears throat> I've got to get this quote from Thomas. I'm not going to get it right without it. But each one is complete in itself. Each one loves the other in a completeness. So the very nature of Godhood is this indwelling. It's called the perichoresis. That's why i That's actually why I did the E.B. White essay. The perichoresis. There's no desire in God because the desire is that's what sets in motion for those things you don't have. Godhead is complete. There's no motion in God. He's unmoved. The love is shared between them completely. When when God created Adam in his image, it means he created him to love and be loved. That's in our nature by virtue of a Trinitarian God. I hope that's clear, yeah? We were made to love and be loved because that's the nature of the Trinity. That reciprocal wholeness. We, we want to reach a point where our desires are fulfilled and we come to rest in love. Where there's no more desiring, no more motion, we're at rest, at peace in the beatitude, in, in this eternal joy. When God created Adam, He made him in His image, which means He made him to love and be loved. Before the fall, Adam loved God completely with no difficulty. After the fall, what happens to his love? The love that should have been directed at God gets fractured and is turned towards himself and other things inordinately. So he begins to love things as they shouldn't be, love them more than, less than, and to love himself because he turned it away from his, from his God, right? Yes, no?
1: Think. I mean, <laughs> it's
0: really important to see that because what, one of the fundamental things we all have to struggle with after the fall is our own selfishness. That, that we, we do so much thinking we're doing so much for other people and as a matter of fact, so often when we're doing things for other people, whether we want to admit it or not, we're very often doing things for ourselves. That this self-love is fundamental to our fall. It's one of the effects of it, concupiscence and... And so very often when we do things for people, we need a patient, somebody on whom we can work, our ego's invested in it. So I want to just get that out because in, the, in so many of the characters that we've been looking at, we see people overcome with self-pity, drinking. The, the women in the story are, um, are horrible creatures, and it's impossible to see them any other way as, except loving themselves. I mean, they... they Nobody can talk to them, nobody will listen, they're catty. So one of the effects of the fall is this misdirected love and the struggle that we have to face all of this, as I've said it again and again, is to learn to order our loves, to love another for the good of that other person, to so completely get rid of ourselves that we love that way, how hard that is. And we know from our faith that that's a cross. And if we romanticize about it or intellectualize about it, it's not going to be the same thing. Giving up our lives is, can't be intellectualized like that. Um, two things here, bef- um, and then I'll, we'll get to Hemingway um, and, and E.B. White for a minute. But if we think about Adam and Eve before the fall, they loved each other completely the way they should have. There was nothing lacking in their love. They would have had a complete love. They would have loved as God loved them. And remember. And this is this goes to the point again. God didn't have to make us. He made us freely. What's the love we're called to if we're made in His image? A freely given love. We're supposed to make of ourselves gifts. When we start doing things to get rewards, how close are we to the image of the Trinity? Is that clear? Yeah? How much of what we do, when I I see any of our kids starting to raise their kids by giving them rewards, I have things to say, (laughs) it drives me nuts. How much of what we do, we do because, and and this is, by, by the way, this goes right back to the Iliad, booty, what's deserved? I deserve this, I should get this, I deserve better than this, you know. How much of what we do, we do because we want to get a reward. How much of what we do is worsened because we think we should get more than... We're not getting what we deserve.
1: Hmm.
0: And we get angry? What does that tell us about ourselves? How freely are we giving our loves? It's embarrassing to... What do we think about? Is that all clear? How Christ-like. Did Christ come here saying, I'm going to give you my love if I get this in... He said do this follow me do this to love as I do God made us freely as a gift it was freely given we are called to love freely not expecting a reward and not going through the world blaming other people because we don't get what we think we deserve here's the problem because we're also called to justice which means giving what's owed this is going back to the divine Comedy: giving what's owed We're supposed to give to everybody, somebody should give to us, but we're asked to reconcile that with love. How easy is that? Am I going too fast, is is this all right? We together? Okay, good, because I know I'm going fast. Are we okay? I feel like I'm going too fast. Okay, so Adam and Eve loved each other as they should, then they fell. Here's the interesting thing, and for what it says about the female-male psyche, Eve was tricked, yeah, how how she did that, I mean, Milton's Milton's rendering of it is probably the one I think most people accept that there are problems with it, but Eve was tricked, whatever that means about her, I don't know, but she was tricked, okay, she seems susceptible to vanity to be tricked, I don't know, I mean, it's just, but she was tricked. Adam disobeyed and we know that once she falls that the love that she was given is radically changed because what she does afterwards with Adam is not a gift or a love for him something of herself has entered into it and what happens to Adam is the same thing faced with the choice of obeying God or, or being without the woman he's learned to love he chooses her and disobeys God. Eve was tricked. Adam was not. What he did was disobedient. Now, what does that mean for the male-female psyche? I should do something with this. God, More think about it. There's an essay here somewhere. What does that mean for the male-female cycle psyche? I think it means that there's something suscept- more susceptible in women emotionally, in the spirit of an innocence. Do any of the women in these stories have any sense of what they're doing? They all do it with a sense of innocence, like they're not doing... The cattiness, like they're not doing anything wrong, and yet they're vicious creatures. Yeah? I mean, they all do it... I mean, if, if their husband were to say, what, were you, what are you doing, what would, what would the women say? They'd fight. Because what they do, they carry on with this sort of innocence, that they're not doing anything. That's what cattiness is, yeah, that... They're doing these things and acting like they're not doing anything. The sin of the male is different. He, his, his was a chosen disobedience. That's a, in some ways, it's a worse sin because he's deciding in favor of his will to do something. That the sin of a man tends to be in exceeding boundaries to push something and, and to not hide, you know to go out boldly. Now, obviously these things get mixed in. I mean, men and women share these things, so, but it's interesting if you think about the nature of the fall, Eve's being tricked and Adam disobeying, how that plays into the masculine female psyche in everything they do. And I'm sure it can get very subtle and intermixed because we share these things with each other. But, But I wanted to mention it here because if we look at Eve before the fall, because we're concentrating on feminine figures in Eudora Wealthy, we see um, a lovely, gracious woman, obedient. You know. After the fall, it seems to me, one of the things that we see with women if you hold Eve against uh, Mary is that Eve does almost nothing except in a spirit of innocence, even while she's not good. Mary does nothing except in obedience not knowing what's gonna happen, and still saying yes. So we can say, we can describe the two feminine figures in tension with each other in our modern world, non-Christian world, the innocence of of Eve, the suffering of Mary. Just hold those as two poles, between which women struggle, let's say. And what we see in the Eudora Welty stories is, is the innocence of Eve, that these women are doing nothing, Well, as a matter of fact, they're being really mean-spirited, yeah. Um, And we see in the men, I mean, in the wealthy stories, there are no men. The men are gone. (laughs) I think they probably run away. I don't know. In the Hemingway stories, you see all these men attempting to be noble. And I want to wait on that because I don't want to give the stories away. But let me wait on that. But in in one sense, it's just another image of what I'm talking about in, in natural man, man after God's gone. God's not in the picture, what men do, because I think what Hemingway does shows this really clearly in a dramatic way. Okay, let me, let me stop there. In, a brief question, I, I don't want to, because I'm taking too much time, and, and I've got to be careful of time. <clears throat> I want to get to Hemingway and E.B. White, but any questions about this? This is just the classical view, which we've lost, and the Christian view, which we're losing and the way they play out in these stories that we're reading.
1: So that's it in a nutshell. The classical view, you're spending this much time on it because we're going to see it in short stories. Well, we've been seeing it
0: all along. It's been present. Another way of looking at it, Linda's, is... One way of looking at it is that after the romantic view in the 19th century, the romantic poets, up until until the beginning of modernity, the Catholic faith could have been described as, as um, um, Catholic a classical Catholic faith because it, 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 it learned, St. Augustine learned so much from the classics, so did St. So did Thomas. All of the great fathers of the church learn from the classical world something about our human nature after the protestant reformation when the protestants turn away from nature we don't look to nature for guidance anymore not the the way we did in the christian middle ages so christianity up through the renaissance is pretty much a classical christian worldview there was an understanding of our limits that we always had this is classical the pagan world to give some remember the gods were present in that world the gods were present All of the men had to learn to deal with hubris, Achilles, Odysseus. They had to learn to be careful of the gods, to be careful of themselves, to give things back because they knew they received them. The gods were there. (coughs) When the gods disappear and our god disappears, it it sort of opens a door, and what we're left with in modern terms would would be what we would call a a more romantic Christianity, given to excesses, extremes. In the Protestant worldview, you've got extremes of, Light and darkness, God will save me, or it's all depravity. There's no gradations. There's no gradi- In the Catholic worldview, you had frames of reference in nature. You could judge yourself by the consequences, learn from them. That's the world of reason and the natural world. That worldview has disappeared. So classical Christianity is under attack. We just we don't see the world the way the say the medieval Catholic or Greek Orthodox would have seen, or the Eastern Orthodox would have seen things. So, I'm just recalling this because, particularly for a writer like Eudora Welty, Eudora Welty was raised on these myths. They, they turn up everywhere in their stories, and, and we'll see them in so many of the stories that we've been reading. Most modern writers are, carry these things um, in them, these ancient mythic images. <laughs> um, Okay, turn to e- I just want to do EB Wright in 2 minutes. You know the story. He's recalling, he's recalling the times when he and his family went to the lake and um, he he at some point he became a saltwater fisherman and turned away, but something happened and he wants to take his son to the lake and they return to this lake that he where he hasn't gone for some time. And he's recalling these memories and as he's there um, um, event by event by event, he keeps lining them up and, and describing them as if no, ch- no change had taken place. It's like a recurrent cycle. The, the, the guy running out with the umbrella in, under a storm or the guy running out with soap in the lake or the, or, the, or the fly and landing on the fishing rod or the cokes in the store. A, a couple subtle changes instead of three track tires because there was a... You know, a wagon, now you've got four because there's a car. The most grating one that I remember is the motorboat. And he said it's the, the harshest. And it's interesting because that's a sign of the way technology has intruded. But apart from that, his experience is there, things are a part of this timeless cyclical nature repeating. And it, it, it's sort of somnolent. It, it lulls him to sleep as if he can take a piece in it. And then you remember at the very end after the storm his son puts on his um, bathing suit and he describes it in terms of this chill as he imagines himself if, if you've all done that I'm assuming when you put shorts on after if, you know they're, when they're wet and you don't want to put them on because your body freezes and and he ends it with that wonderful description as he buckled the swollen belt suddenly my groin felt the chill of death it was that intrusion of a of a recognition, a realization of how much our mortality is with us. So during this whole time, when he kept feeling that he was um, he was his father, and his son was him, he snaps out of that for this moment because he's called back by his mortality. So that it's just a lovely story. My reason for for asking you to read this, is not only is it a lovely story, but for this. Turn to this, page two. It says, but when I got back there with my boy, we settled in a camp near a farmhouse, and into the kind of summertime I had known, I could tell that it was going to be pretty much the same as it had been before. I knew it lying in bed the first morning, smelling the bedroom and hearing the boy sneak quietly out and go off alone along the shore in a boat. It's him again doing the same thing. I'm assuming any of us who have children know these things, that we see, and Suzanne often talks about her mom and seeing her doing the things that her mom had done and, you know, we, we have those experiences. I began to sustain the illusion that, I, that he was I and therefore by simple transposition that I was my father. This sensation persisted, kept cropping up all the time we were there. It was not an entirely new thing, but in this setting it grew much stronger. I seemed to be living a dual existence. I would be in the middle of some simple act. I would be picking up a bait box, or laying down a table fork, or would be saying something, and suddenly he would not be I, but my father who was saying the words or making the gesture. It gave me a creepy sensation. Now, that's a small paragraph in this story. Um, is, is that all it is?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I seem to be living a dual existence. The sensation persisted. It gave me a creepy sensation. It's, a, it's as if he's talking and he's hearing his father huh. say the words. Is this just a transposition is it just an imaginary thing, or is it something more?
1: I think it's real.
0: Oh, it is, for sure.
1: He hears his father through yeah. him. Yeah, that's but he uses the
0: word, he says, I began to sustain the illusion that he was I, and therefore by simple transposition sure that I was that 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 my father. My
1: father. <clears throat> it's not simple.
0: Let me give you an example of my own, because when I read this, it just it almost knocked me over. Um, when Suzanne and I were in our first year of p- as being parents, I was teaching tennis part time, and, and well, I think I was in graduate school then. But I'd come home after a day of teaching, and sweaty, and, and I would take a shower. And Amy, who was our first child, our oldest, would generally be glad to see me. I mean, she would smile and come up, and and very often I'd take her into the shower with me, and we would shower, and we a kind of cooing, you know, the way, what was she, not even a year or something like that. She would coo and, um, it was just a pleasant time, I really enjoyed the moments with her and, um, (laughs) one day I came home and she was sick and she didn't greet me that way and I took her in the shower and she sat on the shower, on the shower floor, the pan of the shower, so it wasn't this lively child cooing and, you know, happy. She was sick and sad, and she couldn't move. I mean, she just, you know, she, um, my heart broke in that moment, and something happened in that moment that just shocked me. My mom and I had a pretty difficult relationship when I, when I was growing up and afterwards. Um, I mean, it, and I'm putting it sort of mildly, um, but, but in, the, in that moment with Amy on the floor, she wasn't cooing, the way she, you know, or trill her lips with the water, you know, doing what kids do. She was just there quiet, and it was a different experience. In that moment, I became my mom looking at me. And there was something about the breaking heart, I mean, that I just so, I was so touched by it. Something about the sadness, the way it broke over me, that I don't know how it was, but for a moment I was my mom looking at me. So I'm asking, is this just a simple transposition or is it more? And if it's more, what is it?
1: It's right here. It's more. To me, it's sort of a guideline.
0: Yeah, explain that. No, sure. I don't even know that I can. There are, just,
1: there are just times where you're in touch with something beyond yourself. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've had those experiences. Not all having to do with kids, and you know, there's yeah. times where you're you're not like aware of a light or. Whatever in the universe, or a, a, an experience that's yeah. universal.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Sort of like the circle of life. Yeah. I'm becoming my mother. And oh. My kids are becoming me. Oh. Mm-hmm. So it's a circle.
0: That sounds pagan to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Circles
1: <laughs> I, I think those moments really um, help you understand or appreciate and feel. And oh. feel. Yeah. That's a feel. What I, I mean, I've had those kinds of experiences, and I and I thought, wow, yeah. how did how did my mom and dad, you know, what was almost makes me cry, that yeah. that emotion yeah. that they had, that as a child I had a no clue about, right, and yeah. so now I, I it's like, holy smokes, mm-hmm. and it, it it's just it, even now it just you yeah. know it just yeah. comes over you yeah. that. Um, you know, they weren't this, this person over here that, as a child, you just, you know, okay, they're always going to be there, and, yeah. and what they do is, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's an overwhelming feeling. It's, like it's interesting. It's eternal.
0: Yeah, yes. It's, yes. It's really interesting that, that your first words were thought or something, and I injected feeling, yeah. and you went from there to overwhelming emotional. Mm-hmm. It is. I hope you think about that. Um, the, 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 the perichoresis is what? Here, wait, by, we did this in Dante. When Dante and Beatrice get up to the paradiso and they're going through the heavens, Beatrice already knows what he's going to say a moment before he says it. Why? Because she's, remember all of those reflexive verbs we kept talking about, I am indwelling, I am in othering you, and you are in thee me, that as you approach God, you approach that condition where love is unitive and you become more one with another human being. What's the ultimate source of this? I just went through the first principles. The Trinity is one God, one God, three persons, absolutely indwelling. So even when there's three, I've got to get that quote from St. Thomas. Even when there's three, they're one. Three, here, something like this, three is no more than one in the unity. Put your mind around that or your heart. <laughs> um, this, was, this, was, this was supposed to be the mode by which we did it. The, the roses had the look of being looked at. You know, the, the, this sense of being one with another. Because after the fall, we've been talking about, we get into this subject-object dichotomy. We tend to objectify things with our heads to, to make them an other. So, instead of being one with them in love, in love, feeling, I mean, in our heart, you know, we're in our heads treating somebody as a, an object, a thing. So, when, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't think E.B. White had any notion of the perichoresis, but he used the word simple transposition, I wanna say. Well, at least I wanna ask, is this a moment, a, a perichoretic, a, a moment of the perichoresis, an indwelling? And is it? And it's, it's like he has no language for it. It gave me an eerie feeling. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't have a, if you don't have a place in your soul for mystery, how is something like that going to affect you? It left me with a creepy feeling. Yeah. It's really interesting to me because, in some sense, it, I, the question that this raises for me is: Is that the way it should be for all of us? And sadly, we don't enter into it enough because it's such a risk to let go of ourselves get outside of that subject-object. I just wanted to raise that question. Yeah? No? Yeah. I love it because to me, and, and particularly when I, when it, the first time I read this and I recalled that moment with Amy in the shower, because I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that moment. My heart broke. I never had anything like that. To be my mom? Are you kidding? To be my mother? But for a moment, God, I think it's uh, part of maturity because uh, when I was in my twenties or so, I didn't think I was anything like my mother or my father. But now <laughs> I can see myself. <laughs> <laughs> or my wife says, "You're just like your mother." <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I see it more myself. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Hopefully, I, mean, I hope, I mean sometimes I'm not sure that that's a good thing, but I think hopefully we, we hope that, that the best things get carried forward and they become one with us, so that we're actually a part, of it. it's not a cyclical, it's a unit of, we are one with them in some way. So even though Suzanne's mom is dead, I know she remembers her a lot, and I think she carries her with her a lot, you know, that they're a part of us in um, some way. And I I think you're right, Don. I mean, hopefully, it's a sign of maturity that it's something unitive that we hold on to more as we as we age, and and that's the form that that it's one of the ways in which love shows itself. Okay, you ready to go back to the dark world to look at Hemingway now? (laughs) We were going to do the four quartets, but there's no way. I'll pick it up next, next week. Sorry for the delay. You can blame my son and his, my youngest son and his wife and their five boys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if any of you
0: have any extra bedrooms, <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I are looking for a place to stay. <laughs> <laughs> we, do, <yeah. laughs> we
1: can make That's that happen. That.
0: Linda just made an offering. <laughs> don't don't let her off the hook on this one. Doc.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: um, I've got a couple of. Um, just very, very briefly, I, w- I want to look at just a couple of things here, because I want to leave. We've got to stop by 11 for sure. Um... The, I have a serious, serious question with the Hemingway story. Let me put it out here for, for you to think about before we get there. Hemingway is a consummate artist. It would, I hope to show that in just a minute. He was one of the greatest storytellers of the 20th century. And I don't think to my knowledge, my awareness, I don't think anybody surpassed him in short stories telling. Faulkner's done a lot of short stories but Hemingway did f- a lot more and I, and I think he did a lot more that were really outstanding stories. We're reading three of them this morning. Um, in some ways I think Faulkner was a greater artist because he risked himself more and he, he went out on a limb and did more things. Hemingway saw something and once he saw it he, He stayed with it, so I'm not sure that he risked himself as much, but what he did, he did with consummate perfection. I want to show that in a second um, as an artist. But here's the question, and we're going to look at these three stories, um, Short Happy Life of Francis Comber, Hills Like My Elf in a Clean Well Lighted Place. Every one of them is really dark. There's no God, and Clean Well Lighted Place ends with a parody of of the Lord's Prayer. Are Nada? Who are Nada? How Nada? You know, um, hail, hail Nada! Full of Nada! So, and, and by the way, Hemingway converted, t- became a Catholic towards the end of his life, and you know that he ended, took his life at the end. Um, so he faced despair, and the characters that he that he gives us in his stories are, for the most part, facing despairing kinds of situations themselves so I'm back to the same question that I asked when we did Sound of the Fury is Christ here if so where I don't want to answer it but I want to come back to it is he here is Hemingway prophetic and you know that one of my definitions of prophetic writing is they're the writers in the cave who help us to see ourselves so we can begin to get out how important seeing ourselves and I've said it you're probably, probably saying I say it too much, but I'll keep saying it, but um, they very often tell us those things about ourselves we don't want to see. They're just these things in our depths that are, are often unpleasant. And so is there a prophetic quality to him? Does, does that do it? Um, is there no Christ? Is Christ present? If so, where? And I want to put it more starkly this way. Every one of these stories, particul- I think these are three of the best stories he's written. Maybe, maybe the three single best short stories he's written. They are perfectly ordered, well ordered. They, are be- they, they, they have a quality of beauty as works of art. And they throw a light on the world. So they're ordered, they're beautiful and there's a truth to them how could a man produce something like that when he looked at the world and he believed like most moderns that looking at the world he was staring into nothingness no order no beauty no light where does such order beauty light come from That's as stark as I can put it, okay, but I want to put that out. Is there seems to be an, a discrepancy, some kind of incongruity there. When you, when you read Hemingway, you're, you, you read these stories, you, you have to enjoy them because they're so well done, even if they're painful. But he's looking out on a world in which meaning ceases to exist for most people. The, the most important thing for people in Hemingway's world is having a good time. That's what Jill says in the train station, yeah. Before this, we used to just see places and drink. Young people today, what do young people do? Spend their lives. After work, go to a bar. After work, go to a bar. After work, go to a restaurant and drink. Drink and drink and and go on trips to see things. The most important thing in the modern world is feeling like you're free, and the sign of that is having drinks, having a good time, but... So that's it. That's the situation the couple faces in um, Hills Like White Elephants. So that's my question. Is Christ here or not? What do we do? How do we look at this? Okay. I'm going to summarize these three, and, and then I'd, um, I'd like to come back to this, that question. In Hills Like White Elephant, um, we, we're, we're shown a couple who are at this stopover station between Madrid and... and um, Barcelona and something's wrong it's it's interesting they never mention what's wrong here's Hemingway's technique it's called the tip of the iceberg he only gives us this much always but it's just enough to make us aware that there's more going on down here which is the way it is in life so go through life and everything seems to be okay. We've gone through this again and again it was that way you know everything's okay. If you look underneath the surface, things are not okay. The two of them are are struggling with each other over some problem they can't resolve. He keeps telling her it will be nothing that he will support her. It clearly means more to her. She knows that, that he's not being honest in some ways, that things won't be the same as a woman. She's aware that, that they may not survive this or deal whatever it is. They have beer, they, on the first page they have this Anis del Toro, Anis del Toro, it's a drink. She makes this facetious comment about the hills looking like white elephants and she comes back to it later because he doesn't find it funny and she says, if we, if I do this, you laugh at my jokes like that. She just wants things to be okay. Here's a woman wanting to make everything all right. So she'll do anything, even whatever this issue is. Um, um, he says, um, I know you wouldn't mind it, Jig, it's really nice, just to let the air in. The girl did not see. He said, I'll go in and stay with you. They just let, that is, that's all it is. There's that modern dismissal to treat it as if it's nothing. Um, Well, the man said, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. I wouldn't have you do it if you didn't want to, but I know it's perfect. Every time he says, you don't have to do it, he follows it by saying it's simple. Because that isn't what he wants, because we know that he doesn't want anything to change their life. That he wants to continue having the freedom to do whatever he wants. Um, And at the very end, they continue this way. Um, They're just repeating themselves again and again. At the bottom of page three... Would you do something? It's it's all right for you to say that, but I do know it. It's perfectly simple. He says again, "Would you do something for me now? I'll do anything for you." Will he do anything for her? No. No. Okay, good. I'll do anything for you. Would you please, 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 please stop? Seven pleases. In King Lear, King Lear says when he's losing Cordelia, "Never." To me, it's the most painful. It's five nevers. Emmy Noether would have known that. He outdoes Lear because that's how, how much he wants him to shut up. He says, please, please, seven times. But I don't want you to, he said, I don't care anything about it. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, just hold on to that. Hold on to that for a second. In a clean well lighted place, an old deaf man comes to a bar and there are these two waiters, a young waiter and an old. The young waiter is arrogant, selfish, self-centered, he wants to get rid of the man because he wants to get home so he can have sex with his wife he thinks of himself as having confidence that he's bold and brave and he can do anything and it's like a stud who wants to get home and be studly with his wife in bed the older waiter is more sympathetic there's a kindness in him he says he would be willing to keep the the cafe open in case there would be people because he makes the point there are always people out who want a clean well lighted place um, as a matter of fact, the, the younger waiter gets so irritated at the man that he says, I wish he'd killed himself because he'd already tried to kill himself. So we know that the old deaf man is there because he's in despair. He's going to take his life. And, and the, old, the young waiter thinks he must be poor because you have no reason if you got money. And it's, it's clear, the answer to our problems is never poverty. There are as many disorders among the rich as there are the poor. Getting wealthy will not make our society better we've got problems. This guy's got money and he's still hung himself. The young waiter says I wish he killed himself because he wants to get home. That's how little he cares for another human being. Mm-hmm. The old man is kinder um, and he, he makes a couple of observations. He says, watch him when he drinks. He drinks with dignity. This is the Hemingway ideal. To do whatever. This is Hemingway's ideal. Grace under fire. That's his ideal, grace under fire. Whenever there's a difficulty, you hold your head up and go through it well, with dignity. Now, I wanna come back to that in a minute, but I, to get it out here, because he says that about the old waiter, watch him. He's, he's deaf, he's old, he's been drinking a lot, but he says he's, he doesn't spill it, he's, he's not sloppy. He does things with dignity. And when he walks off, he walks off with dignity. And then it ends after he closes up the place. The old man goes off to another place. He doesn't like bars and bodegas. This is really important. He doesn't like bars and bodegas. He wants a clean, well lighted cafe. At the end, he says, or it says, he disliked bars and bodegas. A clean, well lighted cafe was a very different thing. Now, without thinking further, he would go home to his room. He would lie in his bed, and finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep after all he said to himself it's probably only insomnia many must have it That's a typical Robert Frost Hemingway disclaimer What's he really saying After all he said to himself it's probably only insomnia many must have it Can't sleep insomnia. Is it insomnia what is it it's a deep despair.
1: despair
0: yeah yes. yeah I mean it's a modern world in despair insomnia that's a medical term for something the medical community cannot understand <laughs> it's in the human will <clears throat> one of the I mean let me ask that I don't want to I think despair is the great problem for all of us it, it, it's a fear that becomes that's present in so much of what we do because we don't trust enough in God that's what despair is how much of what we do because we, we, in Amer- as Americans particularly, we tend to be so self-reliant You know, we, and suddenly we find we're making a mess of things and we <laughs> learn to turn to God despair is this fear we have in dealing with problems when we don't trust in him faith takes that away right? If we trust in him. By the way, I want to, because it, it, this is so, you know in the middle of our service, in every one of the masses, to always, to, to always and everywhere give you thanks. To always, I want everybody to write that down. To always and everywhere give you thanks. Now hold on, does that mean accepting the times when things are hard or we're suffering? Or we're we're having to deal with something we don't like? Always and everywhere. What does that mean about the difficulties we face? If we're being rational right now, logical. What should we do with God at a time when things are horrendous? Trust him. Give him thanks. How many of us thank God for burdens? I'm not kidding, I'm really not kidding. When we, I think I told you the story. When we were in uh, Manchester, we had this priest when things went dark for us for a while. The, the, the contract wasn't renewed and we didn't have any warning. The priest that meant so much to have said to Suzanne once, and, um, he said, I don't know what the, but he said to her, always give him thanks, even for your struggles. That was an amazing breakthrough for her and for me, to hear somebody say that. Cause I, it's hard to picture anybody. Nobody had ever said anything like that to me or her in our life. But the line in the masses, always and everywhere <laughs> give you thanks. How often do we thank God for difficulties? After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. I mean, this is the disclaimer. Frost has it. Because if there's no God, we tend to just disclaim, we, we undercut, understate things. Is it insomnia that keeps people awake? That's a medical term. No. It means there's something unrestful in our souls that we're struggling with, usually. The Short Happy Life of Francis McConver is about McConver and his wife who are on an African safari. The wife is a biting creature. She reminds me of the Women in Wealthy story. She's mean, vicious in some ways. The story opens, I wish we had more time, We, we don't. The story opens with them returning to camp after he showed himself to be a coward. And, and we don't get that for a moment. We just, that, by the way, look at how powerful that opening line is. It was now lunchtime and they were all sitting under the double green fly of the dining tent pretending that nothing had happened. Why are we going to read on?
1: Right? I mean, how good is that for
0: an opening? And then we, they go around it for a while and it's clear that it's uncomfortable. McComber's the one who breaks it open and he does it in a way that disturbs Wilson because William, Wilson is this sort of heroic. Hemingway's, this is really good because Hemingway clearly is showing an irony to that stance that the stiff upper lip of the man dealing with, you know, is not quite enough. Because Wilson does it and Wilson's full of failings, as we see. Wilson is embarrassed at McComber because he thinks he shouldn't talk about these things, you know, that it's just too embarrassing. Um, the wife come back after she leaves in tears and she has nothing but cutting remarks to make. And um McComber at once said on one point on page five at the top, says, Why not let up in the bitchery just a little bit, Margot? McComber said. I suppose I could, she said, since you put it so prettily tonight, we'll have champagne for the lion, Wilson said he's trying to get it back. Um, so, Robert Wilson thought to himself, she's giving him a ride, isn't she? It's interesting that the only, there's only two figures into whose consciousness we go. One of them is Wilson's. We keep getting his silent thoughts about Macomber. Who's the other? The lion. The number of times, it's really interesting. And I, I, I wish we had time. I don't know that we'll have time to come back to the. He, he does that a couple of times. We get into the consciousness of the lion so that we're seen from inside. Why would he do that? I don't want to, but hold on, because if we have time, I want to come back. That night, um, there's a shift, a time shift that takes place. Um, sorry. Where is it? Here on page five at the bottom. It had started the night before They go to bed, he's thinking about it, and it takes him back, the embarrassment of the day takes him back to the night before, when he began to hear the lion roaring during the night, and it frightened him. And he got more and more fearful through the night, so that by the time he woke up to go to the hunt, he was shaking, yeah. Um, We get the hunt itself, and we learn what happened. The, The lion was actually shot and wounded, and they have to go into the brush to recover him, which is even more frightening because he's hiding. You don't see him, he can come at you at any moment. On... Um, I think it's here, doesn't she reach up in the front after he does that and kiss him she kisses Wilson. on the lips? Yeah, she kisses Wilson. Sorry? She kisses Wilson. Yeah, right. On page 12, we have a time shift back. It's middle of the morning. He's been up in the middle of. Er, this is 12. It was about three in the morning. And Francis McCumber. he's awake, and his wife comes into the tent. Hello, she said. Are you awake? I just went out to breathe air. You did like hell. What? What? What do you want me to say, darling? Where have you been? Out of breath? out to get air. That's a new name for it. You are a bitch. Well, you're a coward. Um, Nothing as far as I'm concerned, but please let's not talk. Darling, she keeps using that. You think I'll take anything? I know you will, sweet. God, it just, she keeps, um, well, there it is now, she said sweetly. You said we made this trip and there would be none of this. You promised? Yes, darling. That's the way I meant it to be, but the trip was spoiled yesterday. We don't have to talk about it, do we? Define their relationship, just quickly. (laughs) No. Quick.
1: Antagonistic was the first word. What's oh, antagonistic,
0: yeah. yeah What's the but basis?
1: Underneath the sweetness is the oh, yeah, sword.
0: Yeah. It's a social contract, I've talked about the social contract from Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It's, it's t- the monarch wait, the sacrament is gone. People come together for a civic arrangement. You enter into a con, prenuptials? What does that say about trust going into a marriage? I mean, it, the basis is, is contractual. I'll do this for you, I won't do this for you. I mean, it's, it's a way of setting out boundaries. So the two of them can live conveniently. But we know that what's underneath it is one person using another to gratify whatever they want, men and women, both, okay? That's the nature of their relationship. So there's a rivalry. She can best him because she knows if she can, she will have control over him. He's, I think it's
1: also some hate. Yes, she needs him for money. Money. He needs her because she's beautiful. Beautiful. Right,
0: right. So there's this rivalry and a sense of pride, and an unwilling an unwillingness to admit the dependence in that relationship. So, go on over to the very end. You know what happens the next day? They go hunting for the buffalo. And similarly, they wound the buffalo and they have to go in to get it. By that time, when they wound him, the car is moving, they're not supposed to shoot, and they're as it's slowing down, McCumber takes his shots and apparently kills the first one. Wilson takes care of the next two, and then they stop. Margot it, it becomes clear to her that she's now got something on Wilson because he broke a law, and he knows that. And McComber says, now you've got something on him, so he knows what it feels like. They have to get out of the car and go into the bush to get the buffalo. When they do, McComber, um, after he makes the wound, what he thinks is a kill, he says he, um, on page 18 in the middle, I've never, I've never felt any such thing. Wasn't it marvelous? She says, I hated it. Why? I hated it. Why does he love it and she hate it? He found courage, and
1: she knows she has less yeah. control over
0: him. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. That she feels her control. If he can do anything with courage, she knows that her control will slip. And whatever power—remember, Clytus Circe, Whatever power she has over him is loosening. He says it again. This wonderful quote that Wilson takes from Shakespeare down at the bottom of eighteen. That's it, said Wilson, um, because McComber says, I want to try my hand at a lion again. It's like he's renewed with courage, and something new has happened to him, and Wilson quotes this line from Shakespeare. How does it go, Shakespeare? Damn good, see if I can remember. Oh, damn good. Used to quote it to myself at one time. Let's see. By my trot, I care not. A man can die but once. We owe God a death, and let it go which way it will. He that dies this year is quit for the next. <laughs> That's from Shakespeare's, I think it's Henry V. Um, in his Henry plays. He says it again, Macomber, that he'd never felt this before, that it, he he felt elated as if he were a new man. Margot doesn't want to admit it. They go into the brush, and then at the top of... Um, in the middle of page 20. They go into the bush and they get, um, they see the the buffalo coming at them. McCumber stands up and faces the buffalo even when the buffalo is coming directly at him. Wilson jumps aside to get a side shot at him because he thinks he'll have a better shot past the horns and McCumber doesn't move. Middle of the 20. He's dead in there Wilson said good work and he turned to grip McComber's hand and they shook hands grinning go down Wilson who was ahead was kneeling shooting McComber as he fired on hearing a shot and the roaring of Wilson's gun saw fragments like slate burst from the huge boss of the horns and the head jerked he shot again at the wide nostrils and saw the horns jolt again and fragments fly and he did not see Wilson now and aiming carefully shot again with the buffalo's huge bulk almost on him and his rifle almost level with the oncoming head nose out and he could see the little wicked eyes and the head started to lower and he felt a sudden white hot blinding flash explode inside his head and that was all he ever felt. Margot shot him. This leads to obviously one of the major questions of the book. Go down below. Wilson stood up and saw the buffalo on his side, his legs out, his thinly haired belly crawling with ticks. Hell of a good bull. His brain registered automatically. A good fifty inches. Go down. This is on page twenty-one. That was a pretty thing to do, he said in a toneless voice. He would have left you, too. Stop it, she said. Of course it's an accident, he said. I know that. Stop it, she said. Don't worry, he said. There will be a certain amount of unpleasantness, but I will have some photographs taken that would be very useful at the inquest. She had something on him. Now, I mean, he's playing, he's playing this. I have some photographs taken that would be very useful at the inquest. There's the testimony of the gun bearer and the driver, too. (coughs) You're perfectly all right. Stop it, she said. There's a hell of a lot to be done, he said, and I'll have to send a truck off to the lake to wireless for a plane to take the three of us into Nairobi. Why didn't you poison him? That's what they do in England. Stop it, stop it, stop it, the woman cried. Wilson looked at her with his flat blue eyes. I'm through now, he said. I was a little angry. I'd begun to like your husband. Oh, please stop it, she said. Please, please stop it. That's better, Wilson said. Please is much better. Now I'll stop. How do we understand the shooting? How do we understand the shooting? Let me just... Shafani, you look like, no, no. Um, Debbie? Well,
1: I, I think she knew that she had absolutely lost control and lost him completely, and she could not continue to live her life that way because she was going to lose everything. And so it was easier to kill him.
0: So the question, was this an accident, or did no. she no. plan to kill him? I, or was she aiming what, at him and unconsciously wanting to kill her husband? What?
1: I don't know that she... Had plan to kill him, but I think in the moment because she had a realization that he was going to leave her and she couldn't deal with that and so she took him out. The opportunity presented itself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, I've got one question and then I want to return to the Christ question, but I want to make this really clear. I said this before, let me Just say it again here because it's so startling when you see it. In all these stories, in all the stories, in every, the epic, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the setting, the sea, the battlefield, the setting is always a metaphor for the action. You know what the action is? The plots, the sequence of events, the action is the underlying thing imitated. The setting is always a metaphor for the action. What's the metaphor for short happy life of Francis McComber. How's the setting a metaphor for the action? It's a safari, it's a hunt. <coughs> what does it show about marriage? It's a hunt. <laughs> Isn't it? Wait, look at this couple, is there any other way to describe no. What's going on between the hunters and the animals? <laughs> is exactly what's going on between the husband and wife. It's predatory.
1: The feeling I had was kill or be killed.
0: Yeah, is there yes, yes, yeah. It's, it's predatory. Yes? It's a perfect metaphor. I mean, think about that, because in a sense, that image of the setting images those invisible things that are internal, that are being expressed in the action, but it's there. It's predatory. They love each other. No, they're rivals. I mean, the, the and, and which, which means as rivals, death is ultimately an implied end, whatever form it will take. What's the metaphor for a clean, well-lighted place? I mean, what's the setting? Hmm? The,
1: the bar, the cafe. Yeah, but what's that a
0: metaphor for? Um, life. It's life. People come in
1: and out.
0: What is the the clean, well-lighted place?
1: Hmm?
0: Heaven. Yeah. Yes? Isn't everything in this story a parody of heaven? Clean, well-lighted place. That's all they want. Mm -hmm. Take God away and what is it you want on earth? Ironically, even though it's not there, it's Nick's best substitute. (laughs) What does that do to explain the action that goes on with the old deaf man? He tried killing himself. He's there to come to a clean, well lighted place. It's uh, see the irony of that parody? Take heaven away. I mean it just it's just the depth of this goes on and on and on. And how much of how many of us pay attention to settings in our life with the understanding that it says something? That that all things speak. Yeah? What's the 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 setting for um, um, hills like white elephants, and how is that a metaphor for the action?
1: Mm-hmm. The train stations, train, station. train station? and drinking. You're drinking and they're they're traveling.
0: Where are they? <coughs> in,
1: the of space.
0: in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. At cross purposes. They're at a juncture point in their lives, right? It's a juncture point. It's a and it's a. I mean. It, if you look at the characters in all these stories, they're, they're at cross purposes, nobody connects. So the train, I mean think about this again, because the train station in a sense is a metaphor, it actually is a visible image of exactly what's going on invisibly in these, in this couple. Here's the thing that I want to ask. Um, the major images in Hills Like White Elephant, because this is, it's what, two, three stories, three pages long, Hills Like White Elephant. She says, look at the hills. The hills are like white elephants. The drink as it is, anise del toro. The drink tastes like licorice. It does. Yeah? Anise. What's the significance of all those things?
1: Well, I didn't know the significance of the anise. I mean, I think yeah. it's supposed to be an elite maybe drink. I don't like it.
0: Anise so del toro is the, se- <laughs> is the seed... Is the seed... Of the bull, how does that relate to the story?
1: Look,
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> no wonder you didn't taste can we, no can we, I don't like it. I'd ask you to flesh this out, but I want to get.
1: <laughs>
0: how does this relate to the story?
1: No pun intended. Flesh this
0: mm. out. Ew. I mean, it's an image of the guy, in one sense, the seed of the bull. He's impregnated her. Does he want anything to do with her? White elephants are elephants in eastern countries that are unwanted. People want to get rid of them because they're too great a burden to keep, so they're usually given to people in poverty and they become a burden. Isn't the relationship of that to the story obvious? Wow. Licorice. What does licorice taste like? Everything tastes of licorice, especially all the things you've waited so long for, like absinthe. They're bitter. The railroad station. It's an in-between stop. The Anastil Toro. The hills like white elephant. Licorice. Is there anything in this story that doesn't tell? Everything tells the action. Yeah. Now just think about that how consummate an artist is that there's nothing going on here that doesn't speak to the action that it doesn't give an image of it yeah now go back to my question if you look at the story it, it is it is here's the, here's the it's it's put to order with such a perfectionist quality it's perfectly done for any way to do this, had, he had to have something of a perfectionist in him to make it this good. If something is this well ordered, something has this quality of beauty, and it shows this kind of light, where does he get it? If the world is a world of nothingness, that when he looks out in the world, he's staring into nothing. How do we square those two things? I'm asking this pretty seriously. To me, it's one of the well, as an artist, don't you think you he, he would have
1: ha, have access to that intuition uh, of life, and he could u- use that in his writings, but not necessarily in his life. Yeah. And somehow he lost it. Or never had it. I mean, it maybe, yeah. Say, yeah. But I think that how stark this whole thing is. I mean, you don't get anything of personality. Just two people passing in the dark, as it were. Somebody's going to have, you know, you get that sense. I, my sister sent me a letter after I left the monastery, and she wrote me a letter, and she said, "Dear Tom, welcome to the train station of life. You've been, we've been waiting for you for a long time. Someday you'll get on the right train." God,
0: isn't that great? Stuff, but, well, I don't know. It's a pretty bleak view of the monastery. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say of that. That's, um, the two questions that I'm asking here is how do we square the, the perfect beauty and art of a, of a story like this, how well done it is, and yet the absolute bleakness of the world that it's showing and how to pull those. Two. Greek tragedy did it, but in Greek tragedy there were gods. I mean, one of the differences between that pagan world and ours is is that this classical worldview, the pagans lived with some sense of limits and obligations and something of a human nature. The gods were there; they had to take them seriously. They didn't have Christ. In the modern world, there is nothing. It's nothing. God's gone. So, what do we do with this? I mean, one of the frightening questions to me is, if there's no order in the universe, Wallace Stevens, Hemingway. I, I'll do a Wallace Stevens poem sometime soon, but because for Stevens the only order was in poetry, in art. If there's no meaning in the universe except the meaning that we bring to it in art, what does that do to art? I mean, it elevates it to the status of God. It, the, the, it, it will become It's There's nothing more. We've got these beautiful things. What else is there to live for? And I mean, what does that do for our life? So, the, I, I, that to me is a pretty bleak situation. But go and go back to—we don't have any time. But is Christ present? Let me. Let's because we've got to stop. Suzanne's got to. We've got to. We've got to get some kids. But this question. These questions are pretty serious to me. We've got these extraordinary works of art. It's a very bleak world what do we do with that discrepancy? I'd like to open this up next time for some talk, maybe when we begin. And, and more to the point of what we're doing here in class, where's Christ? Is he, is he present at all? Even if you can't see him, I don't want to answer, but can you all think about that? Next week we're doing four Flannery O'Connor stories. Flannery O'Connor is a Catholic writer. The subject of her writing, let me just here, before you all jump up. The subject of her writing is the, is the conflict between grace and evil. Something happens in every story that involves a violence, almost without exception, a violence. And the question is, will that violence be seen as an opportunity for a grace or not? So that she very often leaves people with these choices. What will they do? Will they enter into the grace? Will they change, or will they continue doing what they've been doing? Okay. In a, in a quick look
1: uh, while we were here, I got a text that a friend of mine, the husband of a friend of mine, wandered off while she was out of the house yesterday afternoon and hasn't been found. He, it's Don and Carol, so people could just keep Don and Carol, Don and Carol. in
0: their prayers. In their prayers. I, <laughs> Wait a second. Could, can Can we just for a second? <laughs> Lord, I mean, let's watch over Don and Carol. Um, let people come forward, offer some help. Help, please. Amen. Amen. The four Flannery O'Connor stories. I only have three. Oh, one of them was Miss. Miss Title. No 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 no. One of them had the the four stories are Heart of the Park, A Good Man is Hard to Find, Revelation. Which one? Yeah, that's Miss it's, it's, it's what a Revelation Heart of the Park. Greenleaf, yeah, and um, Good Man is Hard to Find. Those four. One of them I got the wrong, I got Eudora Welty for Good Man to Hard to Find, is that the one that I, yeah. Good Man is Hard to Find. You should enjoy her. She, she, Flanner O'Connor is Catholic, she's writing consciously in, in the grotesque comic tradition. Everything is grotesque, there's an ugliness to it all. Why does she do that?